Welcome back, everybody. My name is Omar Khalif, or Omar Khalif, as anglicized. And um, I'm the curator of the forum at 154. This year's edition, which is the 10th anniversary edition, is called To Catch Flying Horses from the Sky, The Impossible Task of Dreaming in the Present. And as I mentioned yesterday, I came to this Kashmiri proverb because I was looking and trying to reach my friend Sky Arundhati Thomas, who is a writer who is in Kashmir on her own working on a project and I was concerned and worried for them. And I started to think about the metaphor of Kashmir as this site of multiple fracture, but also as a site of multiple convenings. And so I took this particular proverb because I thought, well, what does it mean to dream of the impossible, to make the impossible visible? And I think one of the things that we struggle with in our field is we're constantly obsessed with speculating about the future, whether it's from a market context or even uh, an aesthetic context. And so what we're doing here over the course of these two days is building a kind of collaborative toolkit to think about what are the urgencies that we as cultural practitioners of Africa and its diaspora need in order to continue to do what it is that we do. And so we have been collecting, asking the audience at the end of the sessions to offer us not necessarily questions, but feedback, emotions, dreams. But there is also paper that gets circulated around that we collect, uh, and those things will be gathered into a publication after this. And what is the aim of today, or even now? This is our second poetry salon, which is modeled after a structure that, of things that I began to do in my own home during the pandemic, uh, due to kind of isolation and separation from people, is that I realized that many of my friends were poets, and we convened and we wrote things and brought them and spoke. And sometimes we brought other people's writing and read it and spoke. So in the same vein as yesterday, where Lubaina Hamid convened a sort of reading session, this is an invitation to be with us as people who read and write and create, to see us share our different forms of expression and to see if we are indeed speaking in a common language or not. The dissonance is, makes it all the more interesting. The theme that I, that I, that I use to, to give to the, the different invited guests who are artists and poets, or really who blur those boundaries, people who are interested in exploring language in some way or another, was I said 
that I wanted us to consider the idea of everyday racism and how it can be interrupted. And it sounds heavier than I intended it to be. But what I was really meaning was, it's often the small things, the little acts that affect us and that sediment in the body. But what does it mean to reclaim that body? What does it mean to live and be in that body? That body which has been made or we have been informed is disabled because of the perceptions of those who we encounter. And what does it mean to find ourselves in the voice? So with that, I will invite Phoebe Boswell to begin. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Dear Mr. Shakespeare, did you know, Mr. Shakespeare, for no one is sure, when you decided to draw Othello as a Moor, that his blackness, his otherness, would always raise queries about whether the play's racist, and other such theories pertaining to your own true thoughts as the writer, the drawer, back in Elizabethan times, which, of course, was before all these histories of trauma, inequality, migrations that have amplified difference, magnified segregations, traded souls across borders, constructed black and white as the slave and the master, the weak and the might. So some say you couldn't know when you drew your hero back in the 1600s. But it wasn't quite ground zero because I read in the Cliffs Notes that back then England's queen proclaimed her discontent at what she had seen as a bunch of neggers and blackamoors who crept into the realm to the annoyance of her people. So in taking the helm against these aliens, mostly infidels, consuming relief, she made this guy Caspar, who was a merchant, the new deportation chief. So, Mr. Shakespeare... Though the slave trade hadn't yet turned hearts to stone, it could be argued that as humans we've always been prone to attacking those weaker or darker or different or fearing the other or mocking their descent. In your own words, Mr. Shakespeare, you pose black as the devil and create characters who speak race at an astounding level. They describe Othello as devil, lascivious moor, black ram. You evoke prejudice at every turn, and your hero is damned by Brabantio's accusations. There's no way his white child in her snowflake-white purity could ever be beguiled to seek the sooty bosom of such a thing as Othello. He claims witchcraft or voodoo, black magic... But hello, you then subvert the whole thing with the poise and the grace that you give to Othello. He stares state straight in the face and says, I only told her stories of the places I've been, of the trauma, the drama, the things that I've seen, the far away, the exotic, it all seeped into her heart. That's the only voodoo that I do. You can't keep us apart. And it made me think a little of the art world's view of the other, as I am a black woman who is yet to discover how to be in the mainstream of this art world's white male tower. They like my stories, but from a distance, those great titans of power anyway. Mr. Shakespeare. James L. Jones performed Othello's speech about voodoo to Barack at the White House. It's on YouTube. And... You knew so well back then how to write for the other, how to give credence to difference and give words to a brother. So I can see why this role garners 
so much attention. It's a role any black actor worth his salt hopes to mention, but wait, Mr. Shakespeare, back in your time, there were no black actors or women playing your treasured roles, only white ones. Nicholas Burt, Edwin Forrest, Edmund Keane, Ira Aldridge was black, but some found that obscene. What is obscene to me is how recently blackface was banned in Othello. It's a total disgrace. Let's talk a little about Olivier, that darling of all your plays, who allegedly blacked up for three hours per day. He would paint himself all over and then buff skin with satin and then paint himself again until shiny. All that in the aim to, quote, bring issues of race to the fore. He would adopt an African accent. It's a farce. And what's more, Gambon is quoted to have said that he used to paint Negro lips on and quipped that if he did it now, he'd be shot. Really, whiteness is quite the planet to be on because you know he's still going to get praised for his command of your iambic beat. Are you squirming just a little, Shakespeare, in your divine literary seat? Let's give thanks then to Paul Robeson, who finally brought to the part all the honour, the grandeur, the valour of heart that you wrote into your art that has bewitched generations with its twists and its nuance and its reverberations. It is the crossover of nation that makes Othello the most coveted role for a black actor because it comes from somewhere way, way down deep in the migratory soul. So, dear Mr. Shakespeare, did you choose the dark charcoal for his, I quote, sooty skin to make a point about race and who can, who does, and who should fit in? Um, and now I'm going to read A Litany of Survival by Audre Lorde. For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone. For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways, coming and going in the hours between dawns, looking inward and outward at once, before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures like bread in our children's mouths, so their dreams will not reflect the death of ours. For those of us who were imprinted with fear, like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid with our mother's milk, for by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hope to silence us. For all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. When the sun sets, we are afraid it might not rise in the morning. When our stomachs are full, we are afraid of indigestion. When our stomachs are empty, we are afraid we may never eat again. When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed, but when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Thank you.
Next is Andrew Simons. Thanks. In carrying on with Audre Lorde, I'm going to be reading an excerpt from her essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury. When we view living in the European mode only as a problem to be solved, we rely solely upon our ideas to make us free, for these were what the white fathers told us were precious. But as we come more into touch with our own ancient non-European consciousness of living as a situation to be experienced and interacted with, we learn more and more to cherish our feelings and to respect those hidden sources of our power from where true knowledge and therefore lasting action comes. At this point in time, I believe that women carry within ourselves the possibility for fusion of these two approaches so necessary for survival, and we come closest to this combination in our poetry. I speak here of poetry as a revelatory distillation of experience, not the sterile word play that too often the white fathers distorted the word poetry to mean in order to cover a desperate wish for imagination without insight. For women, and I would add fat, queer, black boys, then poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. The furthest horizons of our hopes and fears are cobbled by our poems, carved from the rock experiences of our daily lives. The White Fathers told us, I think, therefore I am. The Black Mother within each of us, the poet, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. Poetry coins the language to express and charter this revolutionary demand the implementation of that freedom. However, experience has taught us that action in the now is also necessary, always. Our children cannot dream unless they live, that they cannot live unless they are nourished, and who else will feed them the real food without which their dreams will be no different from ours? If you want us to change the world someday, we at least have to live long enough to grow up, shouts the child. Uh, and this next piece I'm going to read is uh, a piece of my own, Counting Stones. My grandmother had almost drowned when she was a girl in shallow water. When every other island girl was taught to swim, she taught herself to swallow brine, clap at the water to never go down. Those soft hands, the color of cream tea, collect stones where the sand meets the hard grass. Each is inspected under her thumb. She only needs one, two, three. 
Each one goes into her pocket. We are at the longest bay in the west, facing north. High tide has come in, and we have drawn back. My grandmother sits on the sand nearest the mangroves, where the water is shin-deep. She unfastens her brown leather sandals and places them at attention beside her. Her faded lemon dress with the floral pattern pockets seems strangely out of place here. Her eyes are fixed on me. I find a white clearing amongst the seaweed bed. I swim over those dark shapes beneath, afraid to put my feet down upon the slippery softness. I jump up and down, water at my waist, slapping an aquatic heartbeat with flat palms. When my grandmother is at the beach, silence isn't an option. Her eyes remain fixed. Through the years, I had heard of fishing boats named after great-grandmothers drifting back home without fishermen. We knew they had not gone down easy. Or young folk daring on rock edges as hurricanes closed in and nowhere to be found when the storm closed out. Or those bartered for and stored below ship decks, one by four by black millions along a well-mined passage towards so-called new worlds, collateral to be dropped, heartbeat overboard, silence at last an option or an empty makeshift raft from a blockaded island towards a rhinestone democracy, or tens of thousands called towards the Mediterranean from the deserts and the jungles and the holy lands, dozens upon scores who sail inflated vessels painted the same color as passports, flag stars, and stretched tarpaulin, washing up as stones onto shore, waiting to be gathered up by grandmothers, where the sand has etched a hard border between itself and the free grass. This whale is a 27-meter-long, 90-ton, 104-year-old, charcoal-black, snow-gray board markings decorate her jaw, fins with tiny floor-like spirals around her tail. She passes by the coast to sing every year during whale-watching season. She is a breaching whale with a mouthful of krill and seawater, leaping into the sheets of sky until her tail dances tippy-toe on the north horizon before clapping hard onto the ocean's back. Then she goes swiftly deep, belly full of breath, seeking out waterlogged ghosts who have forsworn the surface. My grandmother is Grace. She is stealthy, gliding under pressure between the layers of the dark Atlantic until each open mouth is accounted for. Next is Lakrella McIver. I'm a painter and I paint words. And this is a piece I wrote about why I paint. The name Lakwena means messenger of the chief. The biggest weapon wielded by imperialism is to annihilate a people's belief in their names, in their languages, in their environment, and ultimately in themselves. Ngugu Wathiongo. 
It was upon my arrival from Ethiopia to mid-90s England that I was initiated into alienation. The work began as an act of self-definition, putting back together things that had fallen apart, reclaiming broken pieces and finding new ones. I have not found all the pieces. The work is an ongoing form of resistance, attempting to rebuild and restore what has been lost. Viewed as a series of escape routes, the paintings serve as portals to an Afrofuturist utopia, their words chanting into spaces for the raising of spirits. I have little faith in prevailing modes of decolonization and the systems of salvation embedded in popular culture. My desire for emancipation extends beyond freedom from racist oppression. I am in pursuit of the total liberation of the body, mind, soul, and land from the subjugation of any and every form of enslavement. I'm looking for paradise. If the possibility of total liberation is mythical, it requires a mythical intervention in order to be realized, a chief to take us to paradise. Thank you. And next up is Dr. O, which is one of my ultra egos, who changed the glasses but didn't prepare to lower their voice an octave, which is what usually happens. So the first thing I'm reading is called Beach Books, Texts and Documents with Blake Mitchell. We've been accumulating life for what feels like too long. We were informed that the successive qualities of cumulative culture would repair us. Raises yellow emoji hand. I'd like a processor to process what we have lived through together. Who? You. Was that a request or a demand? I am still waiting at the barricades, socially distanced, but you have not shown up. I see pictures of you topless and trim on Instagram, perhaps nearby. We made a Spice Girls inflected decision to become one, but you appear to have disregarded that promise. Memory lapses are but mere excuses. We shall not reserve them for the young or the elderly, or anyone for that matter. Remember that bitter chill on the 40th floor, watching Alicia Florick in the last season of The Good Wife, debating be between us who was who in this relationship? Who were we going to become? The solar ice caps were melting right outside our window, in the pit of the frozen lake as it came alive in December an apocalypse intending to devour all that was inside of us. But we resisted, somehow, in some very minor fashion. The ice dissipated into smooth blue. Sharja Creek it was now. Ships, tender, inching forward at the pace of ants. Ships, 
dipped in oil and water, ships cooked in direct sunlight, Bastille Day, May Day, Arab Spring, the Lebanese Civil Wars, the never-ending war of wanton longing. Happy birthday, General. It is all yours. These hills, these borders, this nation, this body, this figure perennially standing in the fire. I leave these words, these pages of memory, as a living archive of what was and what could have been. A testimony of illness, my illness in its myriad forms, but also as a document of recovery, of care. In these pages, you shall find an absence, one that we have grown to radically receive. Two obsolete forms, binary genders, hollowed fantasies, unsutured pieces of coil, together, they of brown skin and they of fair eyes are permitted to consolidate. Two fragments unabridged working together, scouring for the ink to offer yet another page. That was from Creating Dangerously, which there may be a copy of still upstairs and I should mention that everyone here who had published books that were available um, were stocked in the store at the beginning of the week and that they may still be there. Uh, I want to just follow that piece that was mine with text from um, Michelle Cliff's book claiming an identity they taught me to despise. Passing. The mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Oscar Wilde. Camouflage. Ground lizards in the schoolyard rustle under a pile of leaves. Some are deep green, others shiny blue. All blend in. I fear they might be there, even when there is no sound. To this day, camouflage terrorizes me. The pattern of skin, which makes a being invisible against its habitat. And yes, this camouflage exists for its protection. I am not what I seem to be. I must make myself visible against my habitat but there exists a certain danger in peeling back. The diamond back without her mottled skin loses a level of defense. Passing demands a desire to become invisible, a ghost life, an ignorance of connections. Such words conspire to make a past, 
such words conjure a knowledge. Passing demands quiet, and from the quiet, silence. Passing demands you keep that knowledge to yourself. This symbolic skin was carried to the United States, where passing was easy. But we are not exotic or aromatic or poignant. We are not aberrations. We are ordinary. All this has happened before. Raymond Antrobus. I'm going to read um, a poem by Claude McKay. It is 100 years this year since Claude McKay published Harlem Shadows, his third book of poems, which has been republished. And I'd like to read a poem called Futility, um, just in case people don't know who Claude McKay was. Born in Jamaica, came to England, uh, educated in England by an English poetry professor. Spent a lot of time in Russia. His, some of his first poems were published by Sylvia Pankhurst. So there's a lot of very interesting socialist history with this poet. Anyway, this is uh, one of the last poems in this book. Harlem Shadows, Futility. Oh, I have tried to laugh the pain away. Let new flames brush my love springs like a feather. But the old fever seizes me today as sickness grips the soul in wretched weather. I've given up myself to every urge with not a care of precious powers spent. Have bared my body to the strangest scrooge to soothe and deaden my heart's unhealing rent. But you have torn a nerve out of my frame, a gut that no physician can replace, and reft my life of happiness and aim. Or oh, what new purpose shall I now embrace? What substance hold? What lovely form pursue when my thought burns through everything to you? Claude McKay. Uh, I'm educated in a, in, in a deaf school, in a hearing school, and I've been spending quite a bit of time in the States uh, trying to pick up some American Sign Language different to British Sign Language. And I came across this story when I was in New York. It was a 300 word article on a CNN website. And when I read this story, I thought, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write about this because it deserves to be more than a headline. When I was in the States, I was trying to pick up some American sign. Like any language, I try and go one word at a time. The word I learned on this day in ASL was the word for alive. ASL, alive. Two guns in the sky for Daniel Harris. When Daniel Harris stepped out of his car, the police officer was waiting, gun raised. 
I use the past tense, so this is irrelevant in Daniel's language, which is sign. Sign has no future or past tense. It is a present language. You are never more present than when a gun is pointed at you. What language says this if not signs? But the police officer saw hands waving in the air, fired, and Daniel dropped his hands, his chest speeding out to the concrete meters from his home. And I'm in New York coffee house reading this news on my phone when a black policewoman walks in, two guns on my hips, on her hips, my friend next to me reading the comment section, Black Lives Matter. Now what could we sign or say out loud? When the last word I learned in American Sign Language was alive. Alive. Both thumbs pointing at your lower abdominal. Index fingers pointing up like two guns in the sky. I'm going to try this one. We'll talk about language. This poem is... Seamus Heaney has this idea, this really generous idea about poetry, that um, poetry is the beat of your tribe. That's how he described it. And that was such a moving and generous definition of poetry for me because I feel like it invites anyone into that, in this idea that language has a beat, it has a rhythm. Therefore, we are all able to participate in that and tune into it. And Seamus Heaney was also known for writing poems in the voices of the people he loved, his family. And something I'll never forget, uh, Jennifer Packer, her amazing exhibition where she had the plaque at the Serpentine that said, bring the people you love into your work. Um, that's such a pillar for me. So this poem is written in the voice of a friend of mine I went to school with and grew up in Hackney. And this, this, this conversation we had and the way that we use language, I think, said something about the kind of life that we've led since school. Uh, so it's in his voice, and this, this poem is called um, And That. It's after seeing a, seeing a friend outside a chicken shop in Dalston. I, I, I always love seeing how this one's going to be signed. <coughs> chicken wings and that. First man, salting them and that. Don't assault man, give man a napkin. Big man, no steroid and that. Dark times, new street lights and that. And how's man? I'm getting by and that. Still boy, them harass. Not beefing, not tad man, still trap. Cycle man, pedaling and that. On road, new pavements, leveled and that. Crack need change, still stay dwelling and that. We eat eight, East man ain't got to adapt. Our kingdom, got no land to hand back. Man chat breeze, chat trade winds and that. You out ends, got good job, legit and that. Lots off man them, stayed plotting and that. Rare, flower shorts, you a hipster in that. Man gone vegan, mm -hmm. no chicken wings in that. <laughs>
So um, when I was, um, I, I lived between two places. This place called, well, I've moved out of London actually. So I'm in England and I'm in the US at the moment. My wife is from New Orleans, so uh, she, she's an art conservator, so I get to spend a lot of time looking over her shoulder at art. And um, when I was in New Orleans, the pandemic had just happened, everything was shut. I began writing this book, which was, I thought about my surname. So my surname is Antrobus, and people often assume that Antrobus is a, a name from elsewhere. They assume it's everything except English, but it's an English name. Uh, it's Norse, and it means uh, between, the, between the trees, between the shrubs. So I was writing all of these poems with trees in them. Um, and it's the name as well of a, of a village in Cheshire. 500 people live there today. Um, it's called Antrobus Village. And so when I come back into the UK and I show my passport and I've got this name Antrobus on the passport, and I'm asked, oh, wh where's this from? And I say, and it's from England. I always get this kind of, no, it's not. And then um, when I'm like, well, it, it is. And what it, what it does mean is that I have a name that is so anciently English that it's become foreign to itself. So that, as a concept, is a gift for any creative per person. Um, so I wrote this whole book kind of where every line is just second guessing, not sure who it is where it is, what it's standing on, what it means. Um, anyway, in New Orleans, I thought I was going to be writing about this place in, in, in England, Antrobus Village, but because of the pandemic, I couldn't go back to travel there. So I thought I had to abandon that whole kind of Antrobus idea. And when I walk in and I see this, this painting at the Historic New Orleans Collection, and um, it's about this, that, uh, about that size when you see it in, in person as well. It's a very striking picture. And so uh, my wife was looking at the painting and she said, oh wow, you know, as an art conservator, this would be a nightmare to conserve because it's a 1800s painting and there's so much shade in it and because of her knowledge of paint and uh, stuff like that, she was talking about how uh, the darker shade, so there's a lot of people with darker skin in it and as well as the shadows, um, those pigments deteriorate quicker than any of the lighter shades on the, on the canvas. So um, that, was the way, that was her way of looking at it. And so she was like, oh my God, the, the amount of work that would go into stopping the people from fading. And so immediately I start thinking, oh, I'm probably gonna write something about this. And then I look at the name of the person who made this painting, and his name is John Antrobus. <laughs> and because I have such a specific name anyone I meet with the name Antrobus is related because they come from that village. That's where the name comes from. That's one of the, one of the gifts and curses of having a, a locational name, right? So I immediately know I'm looking at the painting of an ancestor who was in Louisiana in 1860 and saw this scene. And so immediately I start writing this poem in, in my head. And because I'm not alone in poetry, I thought of the poet Lorna Goodison, who's the previous uh, poet laureate of Jamaica, who's also a painter. And she's got whole poems about how different kinds of shades uh, and, and paints uh, is made um, over time. 
So there's some of her, some researching from her poems kind of come into this poem as well. So this poem is called Plantation Paint. Plantation Paint after Lorna Goodison and Plantation Burial in the Historic New Orleans Collection, 1860, Oil on Canvas by John Antrobus. Tabitha, the art conservator, squints at the color. Tells me the paint depicting the black of these men huddled for a burial will decay before the cypress trees surrounding them will decay. There are several kinds of black, she says, and the cypress trees surrounding them is all I see as we stand alive in this otherwise empty gallery. Why am I like this? What am I like? Who does it matter to? All details question my way of seeing. I worry what kind of black would mark me. I am not the paint made from vine twigs or burnt shells. I am not the lamp full of oil. Tabitha, tell me how you'd paint me. Tell me if I'm closer to the white painter with my name than I am to the black preacher, his hands wide to the sky, the mahogany rock of heaven. Sorry, but you know by now that I can't mention trees without every shade of my family appearing and disappearing. I'm just going to read one last poem and uh, kind of circling back to Claude McKay because I've read a Claude McKay poem um, and I'm very much invested in this idea of um, we are very much in the company, not just of our friends and our peers, but our literary company, our art company, those that have come from before us. And so I read Claude McKay's autobiography, which is fascinating. I so, I so recommend it. He, he was a joker. He was kind of, um, he was a bit of a trickster. I fell out with everyone from like George Bernard Shaw to uh, Gertrude Stein. Like he meets everyone and he's not impressed with anyone. It's like, do these poses, man. Allow these people. He's kind of, he's kind of, he's, he's, he's just interesting. And um, he has this bit in, in, in his uh, biography, which was <laughs> this kind of anecdote about meeting George Bernard Shaw. And um, the kind of, I guess, microaggression that happens between him and Shaw was a version of something that has happened to me so often, particularly when I was like a younger writer and I was kind of in spaces trying to hone craft, trying to learn about writing and, and, and you know, so often you're like the only black in the room, the only black in the village, whatever, the only person of color in the space, whatever. And so I often got asked this question, like why are you writing poetry? You should be a athlete. You should be, uh, you know, why are you doing this? And a uh, hundred years ago, this is a, exactly the same thing that Claude McKay had to put up with, even from revered people like George Bernard Shaw. So, so, so this poem opens with a, a quote of George Bernard Shaw talking, meeting Claude McKay, and then I suppose I spoke back to that. So Claude McKay. It must be tragic for a sensitive Negro to be a poet. Why didn't you choose pugilism? instead of poetry for a profession. Let me keep my fists in my pocket, fidget my ink. Let me stumble 
to my corner. Take my stool. See who squeezes my back, grips my face. Look, the floor. Is that my blood, my tooth, my island? Thank you so much. So, although I have this weird microphone in my hand, just because we don't have five, we're meant to pretend that we're in my living room and we don't care that there's anybody else here. Because <laughs> that's what this is all about, is sharing of each other. I felt really, I don't know if anyone else wants to share feelings, but I had, uh, yeah, it was a, a lot of feelings. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I was trying to draw our co connection a common language. And I think that is the thing, is that we're all seeking a language or a means of expression that whether it's there are, there's this resonance around seeking to uh, understand what exists in the name, what it means to reclaim a sense of self or a history. There's also a lot of discussion around color and texture in a material sense, literally, you know, charcoal, wiping out, coloring in. But in the end, there's this one thing that resounds with me, which is this need to, ex to want something beyond just survival. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was left mm -hmm. with, is that we all want something that's beyond just surviving and I don't know what who wants to say if anyone feels that can say something to that well, I, I guess I speak about paradise don't I a lot in my work I speak about paradise I spoke about in, the, in this thing I wrote today yeah I guess some, sometimes life is just about surviving isn't it but it's not that for me anymore it's about looking for more more than that Yeah, I think for me it's uh, when you when um, I, I guess growing up and there's a lot of anxiety about the world. Um, uh, for me personally, challenges with uh, how do I deal with authority or what's been told to me, then dismantling that, but then yet feeling as if, if I'm being honest with myself, a sense of cowardice that that moves around, and you know I might be afraid to step out. Um, and, and for me, I found that place, that the stage gave me this place that I can come and be something else. And so survival was on the stage and then writing for the, for the stage. And then, and it's why the audio law piece is that it wasn't a luxury that the poetry becomes this, this tool in which I can find this sort of strength, this sort of place to to not be the coward <laughs> as I was moving through a street or moving, you know, in amongst a group of people. I'm using that word coward. But, <laughs> but there's, you know, there's something about um, being able to have this, these words and using, being able to tackle the onslaught of daily 
racist commentary, daily machines, um, that uh, I think Audrey Lord even, I might be paraphrased, this crushingness of machine on the wheels of the machine, you know, that how do you tackle that and you might, you know, that words when you club them together become something that you become the, a weapon or a shield um, to tackle that. I was going to say that um, when I first saw this invitation, my in, my gut feeling was like, oh, I don't want to go into a room and talk about everyday racism. Like, do we have to be doing that? Do we have to come together in this beautiful way and talk about microaggressions and whiteness and all of these things? But I trusted the fact that we were going to bring something to it um, which was counter to that, and I and I and I think that we have. I think that um, uh, just by being here together in this space is doing is doing something. But I I guess I wanted to ask you why you chose that title. Um, it's because I think that the most. The, the the biggest r racial aggressions are occur to those who are not perceived to be uh, belonging to a particular race, and so for me, I, I I mean I'm born to a black father and a mother who's fair skinned, who's entirely African, and born on the African continent, but. My grandfather said to me that I was his favorite grandchild because a son, actually, we were all 16 grandchildren who were all boys, um, were born genetically as boys, supposedly. And I, w we were, I was told that I was his favorite because I was the fairest one, the one white enough who could actually marry an English rose. Mm. And that I think is kind of just ingrained in me and so we lie we're taught to lie about mm. where we're from and who we were and so I I have really struggled in not being allowed to respond to certain things because I, of this dichotomous position but I also have the disability that I manage really well that is really causes a tremendous amount of daily suffering and it affects my speech and my physical being and no one knows about that well now they do because I tell people about it in forums like this but that's why I thought the interrupted part was mm. pivotal is that we're interrupting we're finding ways to interrupt that. And for me, it's like, I want paradise. And I don't want the paradise that I had when I, when we were expat kids living in a compound, four boys in a room um, in Saudi Arabia, it was actually called Al Fardus compound, paradise compound, which actually <laughs> was not paradise, Waza. but hell. It was hell on earth. Okay. Um, so that's why, and, and I mean, maybe, I should have articulated that, but in a sense, I always find that 
when I hear someone read, just the, the visceral effect of that, it can change something in human, and it changes something in me. I, 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 feel, I feel vulnerable, and mm -hmm. I think that's good to feel vulnerable with each other. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't mean it as an attack at all. No. Um, I just, I think that there's a, it's just the potency of, of coming into a place where we're black and brown people here to talk about racism. Um, I think sometimes, certainly in, in white spaces, I feel like I'm trying very hard lately not to, like, not to go into places that, we have to talk about lack and we have to talk about the things oh, yeah. where we are not fully seen. But I, um, yeah, so that, that was just an in, initial I, thought. That I, I, and I do think that's one of the things that comes out to me is that this desire to, it's not simply en enough to have your visuality expressed in the world. It's not simply enough to exist. It is about being and aspiring to be exalted without feeling that that is something that can't be attained because you are somehow subaltern. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's been, and the interrupted part is important, is interrupt, in a way it's about interrupting the first part of it, in a sense. I don't know, Raymond, you wanted to say something at some point. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that the word that I heard that uh, resonated with me in the readings I heard uh, nourish and this idea of nourishing and spaces being ones of nourishment and I feel like that's what is being curated here and I've come to this idea of that like I guess my uh, my, my work when I go into um, I've gone, gone into schools and gone into prisons and into loads of different spaces and the whole thing is about curating creative community and what that can bring about in terms of the, you know, new possibilities in a, in, a, in a particular space. Mm. And that has helped me kind of, I guess, kind of compartmentalize and, 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 and develop a kind of vision mm. for, I'm kind of, I'm almost kind of like, you know, the, the kind of overwhelming, oh, culture um, and uh, political strife and all of the isms and schisms and everything that's happening. It's almost like I'm trying, like what Phoebe was saying, I, I feel like I've had to remove myself from the mainstream, main uh, overbearing kind of narrative and align myself with, okay, what is it I can do in this one space that I'm going into today in this, in this classroom or this theater or this, and that for me helps me actually not, like I read the Claude McKay poem, um, that poem, because it's specifically about a burnout. It's about a black man a hundred years ago being like, I can't take this anymore. I can't take what this is doing to me. Mm. You know, and it's written the same year that John Paul Sartre wrote about, about the, uh, his philosophy about the, when someone looks through the peephole and they have that whole kind of vision of, of the, the spectator and they feel safe in that until they hear a noise underneath them and it's the floorboard and when the spectator suddenly becomes uh you know that, that someone who suddenly shifted into this kind of consciousness of uh, awareness of potential danger you know 
And so I've just kind of been connecting all, all of these kind of conversations because I feel like so many of us feel like we have to, you know, start where we are. I mean, and there's, we don't. Mm. Hence, you know, hearing, uh, you know, Audrey Lord and all these other uh, amazing, powerful voices. In fact, when I first, <laughs> so I, I, know, I know Phoebe, we've been friends a long time, and I think I remember one of our first conversations was about this. And we brought up um, a map to the door by Di Diane Brand, and you said, "You see, none of this is new, mm. because because again, uh, if you don't know um, a map to the door, amazing book about the Caribbean, about America, about Europe, um, about language and, and education and the, the the pain, but also the joy in being oneself, coming to that kind of." idea but even talking about it I'm like breathless it's yeah. a lot right I actually just came back from Venice from Loophole Retreat which is this amazing conference that Simone Lee um, made with uh, Saidia Hartman um, Tina Camp and um, Rashida Bambre and it was 700 black women black and queer people and and Lorraine Hansbury was there and she did the final the final um, conversation with Simone and it was uh, this was after three days of, of just the most incredible presentations and performances and discussions um, about where we are now what the future is what the past is and um, Lorraine uh, who is a visual artist, visionary in her, I think she's in her 80s now, and she was saying that the last time they all convened um, was in 2019 in New York, and she was saying it's so important that we convene for these things because we need to find ways of not feeling lonely, and then so this time she was like, I feel like we've moved so far beyond that now that we're not lonely there's critical mass of people who are all kind of feeling the same the same intensity of of um hope and like radical kind of love and care and warmth and um, i think care was something that came up in in all of us a little bit today but yeah so i think that that's when when we gather i what I got from that was how intentional we have to be in mm. the gathering, and in mm. especially when ga these gatherings are archived, how mm. important it is to be so clear about the importance of us mm. being here together. And I think it's about the, I mean, in mentioning Simone Lee's, these structures that she has created for 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 many years. It is about the reconvening as much as it is about the convening because mm. the conversation, every imprint needs its time to sediment mm -hmm. and it's, uh, every feeling takes its time to, to hit the body and, and, and that's something that with, actually it wasn't listening for survival, it was with the Audre Lorde poem, who it's kind of, it's kind of crazy to me to think that Audrey Lord is now like Penguin Random House everywhere, oh. like uh, and like quotes everywhere. And five years ago, I mean, when like I first came here, I couldn't find Audrey Lord. Really, 
I couldn't find Battlehawks. Like, what, 2004, I left most of my books in Bermuda. I went to build my library back here. I couldn't find Audrey Lord. It was, it, it was about, what, four years ago I came up. I finally was able to get a copy. So, I don't know, I'm just adding it. That, yeah, it's, it is. And now it's like I work in a bookstore and Audrey Lord's a, a, a bestseller. <laughs> um, and yeah. that that sh that shift, I think, is not only is it is it a sign of a, of of a, of a community building and forming around language, but it's also something has something to do with you know the expression here of poetry not being a luxury, um, and and the, the the kind of emphasis on emotion as a necessary thing to be articulated was something that I took that it, it's like one of the things that perhaps in the last five years for me have changed with everything that has happened in our world is that I just can't hide things or lie or it, I, my emotions are expressed just much more in a much more they're less distilled and I think that's important in a way because it just makes you able to connect with who you want to connect with and understand much more clearly like this is who I want to connect with whether it's sometimes being not being lonely means actually narrowing the circle as well and shrinking it and being really precise about how you, you absorb your community but one thing that as well that I wanted to ask you, Lakona, actually, is this idea of what does it mean when you put language, I mean, I see your work as poetry and you put language in public space and I wanted to know what, what does it mean or feel like when you put those words in, onto paper and then you see them in space and how people engage with them and how that experience changes the, the words for you. How does it change the words? Yeah, that's really interesting. Scale is really interesting, isn't it? Because so often words stay in a book, you know, like a closed book, and you have to actively go open up that book, seek, you know, seek out to do that. Whereas when you're painting words on a wall, it's just there, you can't hide from it. There's also like an accessibility to it, which is really nice. That people aren't having to go out and look for these specific things. It's, I think a lot of the time, poetry are, can be quite a niche or kind of elitist space, you know? And I like the idea that when you're making, when you're putting words in a public space, everyone gets to see them. Everyone's encountering them. So I think that's really powerful, especially on like a, you know, a street, like a public street. And I guess that, that also changes the way that I use words because I'm, I'm also bearing in mind the fact that I can't necessarily control how this is going to be framed. I am not in control of the context, you know. It's very much open to interpretation. So that, that does impact the way that I use words and they tend to be quite open, I guess like poetry, where you're not, not necessarily didactic, it's quite open to interpretation. There, there are layers of meaning. 
And I guess also like a universality to the words, especially in a public space where there are lots of people, who, different people who are going to be encountering the words. And they won't necessarily have like um, a, a deep intellectual education. You know, they might not know various cultural references. So kind of, I guess, being aware of that when I'm making work, that it's got to be understood or connect with people from lots of different walks of life. So those are kind of things that I think are quite interesting. You said something about how some people perceive art or poetry as elitist, and I think that that's, in art, like I can say, is that the elitism is constructed partly due to the market and the mm. scarcity, but with poetry, it may have to do with any number of mythological traces or roots, but I have to say that the difficulty of acquiring certain forms of poetry from certain places or engaging with it, 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 it baffles me. It baffles me as, as someone who was born to a poet and, and, and who doesn't understand why it is seen as um, something that is, or conceived as something that is a preserve of the few, because it, it, I find, you know, it transcendental. So Raymond, I should tell you that when I read your work, when you discussed issues of, that clearly now to me re relate to being deaf, or deafness, or being in deaf spaces, I didn't, I didn't read them as that. I read them as about being alienated from your body, from being, for me, there were issues to do of feeling like you don't, you don't belong in your body, or something's not right in your body, or this contingency and this tension. That was my, of course, after, and then, then, then I watch you, and then, it, of course, I read it again, and it's something else. And that's beautiful, that, 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 that rediscovery. And I just don't understand why, it had, why we assume it to be rarefied. And I, and I say it is rarefied because I know it is. I mean, I have, I mean, many people, people here have worked with managers and agents. And for me, the person that I work with says, I don't, I'm not going to work with you in anything that's lyric, poetry, prose stuff because that doesn't make any money mm -hmm. and so no thanks some people do believe in it and I wondered if we could just because we're limited in time if we could each each of you could reflect on how do we keep poetry alive in the world and and, and, and why or why is it urgent to keep it alive and poetry from, from, can be read as a porous and, and form of expression? Um, I will uh, kind of link to Lekwena because we're both from East Africa. And I feel, I think you're, you take a lot from Kanga, the idea of Kanga. Actually, yeah, it's definitely like an early, I guess it's kind of a bit of by heritage, you mm. know, yeah. So Kangas have these aphorisms on them. And what I know about them is that they, they're a way for women to speak to each other. So 
So you won't have a fight with someone. You'll send them a kanga which says what you want them to say. Or, or if you want to praise someone, you will send the, the, a kanga. And there's this kind of feeling around it that um, Ndinda Kiyoko is, an, is a Kenyan writer and she wrote um, the kanga is present and it was about how um, we need to think of kangas in a more historical formal way uh, because it's a way of the oral the voice and the the felt the feltness of a culture to, to be passed down which is not written in, in textbooks and not written in a kind of formal way and so for me um, I really love that I love the idea that you wear poetry on your body that that it's created in this way that is an extension of you and and as you say, you know, when we were all locked down, it, it's a therapy that is kind of unmatched in, in the most kind of fundamental way. And so um, that's why it's important. I think it's just such a, it's an extension of the breath for me. Yeah, poetry is like a public language made private in some ways. My favorite definition of poetry is the simplest one I've yet to see, which is uh, poetry is figurative language with a shape. And all that means is language with more than one meaning. And if we have language with only one meaning, we have this thing called totalism. totalism. <laughs> Again, another word I can read, but struggle to say. Um, so, yeah, but it's that idea of, um, again, I come back to this idea of kind of a tradition, a lineage, even what uh, Pippa was talking about there, like a poetry form, which is a tradition which honours a particular kind of communication, a particular kind of conversation across time. The poem um, that I wrote for uh, Daniel Harris, I wrote that because I had to transcend it from a newspaper article, from the commodity of this only being relevant for one day. And if you can write something like a poem and honor that and share that and give volume to that, then it becomes f almost forever relevant, or at least that's the hope. Um, I couldn't think of something more important <laughs> than, 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 than that. Um, or, or as in, you know, there's so many things, but yeah, it's, it's um, there's a reason why I keep coming back to poetry and it's a very visceral feeling for me. Like like you, my, my, my parents weren't poets, but they loved poetry, I'm raised on it. I had poems on the walls, on the posters. My, my mom loved William Blake, obsessed with William Blake, joined the William Blake Society and yeah. this kind of, kind of stuff. And then my dad loved like dub poets, so Linton Kwesi Johnson, Jean Binter Breeze, and because I didn't know I was deaf, it took me you know, years to, 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 to get speech and all of this kind of stuff. So he used to um, make these tapes, which I have tattooed on my arm here. So this is a tape that my dad made. So in the BBC World Service, uh, they used to have this segment, which is like a, a filler kind of thing, but they would have like 10 minutes of poets talk, uh, reciting poems. You would have everyone from Dylan Thomas to Adrian Mitchell to Miss Lou to Jean Binter Breeze, Linton Crosby Johnson, all these people. My dad would always record this section. And then 
he would play it back to me. And this was at a time when I was struggling to, to learn to, to speak. And so he would play it to me and then he would recite it and then he would ask me to recite it. So on this tape is my voice alongside Linton Quezzy Johnson, alongside Miss Luke. And so my dad did all of these kind of things, I think subconsciously, to give me language, to an, an activity which, you know, you mentioned elitism and this idea of elitism being this thing that's out of reach, even the sign for it is this thing, it's unfair. But you bring it down, you democratize it, and then it becomes this tool that we all have to connect and communicate with each other. I, I, I don't feel like this is um, idealism. These are, these, are, these are tools available to us through language. I was going to say, can I say? I, I, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. I thought it was interesting what you said, totalitarianism, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting. It's something I've been thinking about recently. And I think poetry, it's almost like, you know, they say um, the history, the role of the jester in the court historically. The jester, like the contemporary comedian, could get away with saying things that other people couldn't get away with saying because he was a jester, he had that art to, that way of saying it. And I think in a way, maybe poetry is a bit like that. I'm always thinking about like power and who has the power and all these types of things like, um, you know, who owns this wall? I have to get approval to paint on it, you know, these types of things, what am I allowed to say on it? Mm. But I think that's where poetry is really interesting is that you can say things that you couldn't say if you were writing them as prose, or if you were writing them as, um, yeah, basically. In a newspaper article. Yeah, exactly, if, yeah. if it was something more um, factual, you know, non-fiction, that the fact that you can say things, poetry enables you to say things that you might not be able to say in a very straight way. And I think that's really quite exciting, especially now where I feel like in our culture, there's a lot of very didactic speech. There's a lot of very just kind of like dressed up as actually non-binary. There's a lot of very binary speech. Um, a lot of kind of very quite authoritarian type of speech. And I think poetry, what's really beautiful about poetry is that it, there's an openness to it. And it's not necessarily, you don't really stamp poetry on someone. When you're reading, you're not kind of hitting them over the head with poetry. You're just sharing kind of your, what comes from your soul, you know. And I think that's a really beautiful thing and a really powerful thing. Last minute to you, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just to Bring piggyback. <laughs> just to piggyback. I mean, you're saying, all of you are saying something I think is, I think it needs, it just needs to be spoken in whatever language that is. Spoke and that language could be body. It could be, I I think, um, and I've seen over the years where, uh, you know, you may sell ten books, but you could fill a room that's going to hear poetry, or they're going to watch it, interpret it through dance, or they're going to, you know, through song. You know, you. So that's how it stays alive by the fact that it's it's out there. It's able to be experienced, and that in turn then calls forth the people who wish to then share their own poetry. Um, 
and and then the cycle continues. So as long as it's expressed and it's experienced in whatever way that is, that is out off the page, it will it will live. I think that's how you keep. That's how poetry survives. I think. Thank you so much. Tonight, poetry will live and indeed survive. Thank you, all of you, um, for your t for your time and, and to you.